so sometimes we'll have someone come to us who found us through one of those outlets and we're like we didn't realize you had women and we were just like gender isn't real (laughs) you know what more than anything more than it being a struggle or a barrier it becomes a point of conversation and it becomes a way for us to have another personal conversation with our customer which is the advantage of us being small strong brands are focused and intentional You know exactly what you're going to get from them. When a brand you're a fan of rolls out something new, you already know you're going to want it. They've sold you before they ever showed you the product because they were never focused on selling you a product in the first place. They've been selling you on the idea behind the brand all along. Think Apple and how they leverage global attention with every new product cycle. Think Target and how they sell out of every new design collaboration. Think Glossier and how they've encouraged a generation of women to think about makeup in a new way. And think Everlane and how I just had to try out the performance leggings they just rolled out. They're great, by the way. Strong brands aren't just for big companies or mid-sized direct-to-consumer businesses. Even a tiny business can build a strong brand. But since tiny businesses lack the ability to invest heavily in brand-building advertising, it means the burden for brand development is on conscious, intentional choices about messaging, product development, and organic marketing. Tiny businesses have an even greater need to stay focused and intentional if they want to build a strong brand. I'm Tara McMullen, and you're listening to What Works, the show that aims to transcend the hype about starting a small business by bringing you candid conversations about what's really working to run and grow a business today. This week, my guest is Alyssa Catalano, the co-founder of Studebaker Metals, a metalsmithing and accessories brand that epitomizes focused and intentional choices. Alyssa and the Studebaker Metals team have made careful brand choices about everything from how they style their products to how their products are categorized to the tools they use to craft their products to the messaging behind the products. Alyssa and I talk about the unconventional choice to produce unisex accessories, why slow is fast and what it has to do with their brand positioning and how their brand plays out in advertising, plus the roles of timelessness and place in how their brand is built. Now, let's find out what works for Alyssa Catalano. Alyssa Catalano, welcome to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right. So let's just start off uh, nice and easy, kind of ease our way into things. How would you describe the Studebaker Metals brand? So Studebaker, we are a hand-forged unisex accessories brand, but simultaneously, we're also a traditional metalsmithing workshop. And so we're sort of like a hybrid scenario where we are at the same time our own design house, but also our own production facility. And we also, on the same site that we sort of operate and produce everything have uh, open to the public storefront. So we also allow people to sort of gawk down on us while we're doing work. So we're also kind of a zoo as well. (laughs) I don't think I realized that all of those things were going on at once. That sounds like a lot. It's a lot. Um, Yeah, especially now with a new baby around, we're also a daycare. So... (laughs) But yeah, yeah, we really started the brand with the idea of being a genderless accessories brand, accessories line. Um, And right when we started, we were uh, doing both direct to customer via website as well as wholesale and private label. So 
in the more formal sense, we're really a basically three revenue stream business. Awesome. Okay. That's fascinating. Um, Let's just go ahead and dive into this idea of genderless accessories, because I think that, you know, if someone goes to your website, I'm sure if someone ends up in your storefront, um, that approach is front and center uh, from a sort of collection uh, perspective, like your, your, your product collection, what you offer is so tight, and it is clearly neither completely feminine or completely masculine. It's very androgynous. Anything can be worn by anyone. And that is not what we think of often when we think of accessories, right? We either think of them as super feminine jewelry, or we think of hyper-masculine kind of wallets and, you know, keychains and and cuffs, I guess. What inspired you to focus on genderless accessories? So, at first, it was uh, just a personal stance, really. Uh, when mm-hmm. we started, I uh, I didn't feel like our designs were being designed in like a men's and women's bucket and being separated out that way. And so I didn't feel a need to really present it that way. And like, what would that mean if we had these uh, same products, but we were we were marketing them separately to different genders that just didn't feel comfortable to me mm-hmm. um, and like my personal values, honestly. Um, and then as time went on, we really found it to be a way for us to be extra inclusive. So for instance, if you go to our website or if you go to into our store, nothing is like, oh, here's men's and here's women's, mm-hmm. um, which is a differentiator for us with our competition as well. Instead, it's just like, what size are you? And we have four sizes in all of our bracelets, which is sort of the core of our line. Um, and that that has become really important because when I talk about gender or I talk about size, the, the biggest piece is that across the board, our brand is extremely inclusive in, in both of those realms. Um, and, and I think that a big differentiator for us being, you know, a, a, a fashion jewelry brand is that we're saying like, hey, we want you to wear this, um, additionally with being price inclusive. So just kind of saying, um, you know, like we don't care how you identify or what size you are. There's something for you here. Yeah, that's that's so awesome. Um, I imagine that the inclusivity of the brand gives you lots of opportunities in that anything on your website can be worn by anyone. That's a great sales opportunity. But I also have a feeling that that creates some challenges potentially with, you know, um, how you merchandise, how other people merchandise your work. What kind of challenges have you run into because your jewelry kind of defies industry standards? Well, the number one question that we get on our form submissions on our site or our live chats is always, is this for a man or a woman Mm. (laughs) on any given product? Uh, Or, you know, if, if someone walks into the store and sees something polished, they're like, oh, wait, women's is here. Where's men's, you know? And so I think that the biggest struggle with that is that we have for thousands of years lived in a world where uh, gender was very much like this is one and this is the other. Um, And so people are programmed to think about things that way. So I think it sort of throws them for a minute um, when they first, when they first come to our site and, you know, we do obviously when we use um, like on model photography, there are, um, you know, people who identify as men and women wearing our stuff, but we just never sort of limit what products 
are being worn in the on those two different like presentations. Um, so I think that the biggest thing is probably that our wholesale business, which is primarily to a men's market, because we mm-hmm. offer a product that is you know traditionally male friendly, we tend to get. Uh, identified by those partnerships as a men's storyline. And so sometimes we'll have someone come to us who found us through one of those outlets and we're like, we didn't realize you had women's. And we were just like, gender isn't real. Um, (laughs) So it's just, you know what, more than anything, more than it being a struggle or a barrier, it becomes a point of conversation and it becomes a way for us to have another personal conversation with our customer, which is, you know, the advantage of us being small you know, is that we're able to do that. And so when someone live chats, they may be live chatting one of our employees, but they might be live chatting me or my co-founder, Michael. And sometimes we get into really in-depth live chats on, uh, you know, what is people are traditionally used to being just customer service. (laughs) So, so I think that, I think it benefits us more than it complicates things. Yeah. Well, that's a fantastic example of taking a brand deeper, right? Like it's not just on the surface level, you know, using that as a point for conversation, even in customer support means that the story behind your brand is happening at all different levels. Um, So let's take another piece of that, which is marketing. You mentioned that like in your Instagram feed, there are people who identify as women and people who identify as men, obviously wearing your product. When you think about representing your brand uh, in a catalog on social media, in a wholesale booth, what are you thinking about in terms of the people you show wearing your jewelry? So that is, so that is another thing. And I, you know, I hate to sound like, um, like I'm being like hyper inclusive when I say this, but um, we really do try to mix it up. Um, We, we, first of all, we don't have like any, it's not like we're using like agency models to represent our stuff. Um, We're always sort of casting, so to speak real people. And sometimes in a shoot that could be a couple of 22 year olds. And sometimes that's a 65 year old. And sometimes we've done a campaign before that was just like community, uh, computer, like community change makers who were having an impact. And we didn't really cast that based on looks or age or gender at all. And I think that the message that we're just kind of always trying to send is that we are for everybody. Mm-hmm. That's another reason that we have a lot of variation in in price point as well. And you know, all of our designs, we are we're we're, we're using tools that are one hundred to three hundred years old to make them. The process is really important to us, and we're trying to like really evoke a quality from a different time. And I think the timelessness makes it something that can appeal to different age groups as well. Um, now, when we're actually thinking about marketing and doing targeted and paid marketing, we're obviously br- maybe breaking out different creative to different mm-hmm. groups, but we're not limiting what group we're ever talking to. So on social media, when you're looking at Instagram or Facebook, where sort of all of your following are looking in one place, we just try and mix it up. And and oftentimes we like to keep things predominantly off model, um, even our lifestyle images, just because we find that those perform better anyway. Um, and then we're allowing people to sort of picture themselves in the product rather than telling them who it's for or what the person who wears our piece looks like. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Another aspect of your brand that's kind of front and center is the idea that slow is fast. Can you explain what that means? 
there's nothing slower than fucking up when you do <laughs> what we do. Uh, really, uh, I always say that that's like my standing dad joke about it, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's handmade product. Um, we are real people. We have a real team of people who are making things. And if you rush through something, you have to start at the beginning. So that's, that's what we always say is it's, it's painted very large on our, our workshop wall as well. It says slow is fast up there as a reminder. Um, and, and the key to that really is like quality is everything for us and we're not going to ship anything that is less than perfect out to a customer. And so, uh, rushing through and making any mistakes means starting back at square one. Um, and it's really unique to our process, um, because we're not using machines and we're using, people and hand tools predominantly um, to make our stuff. But I also always, my other big dad joke at holiday season is walking around the shop, reminding people that fast is also fast. Um, (laughs) So, so I don't always even stick to my own company motto. Um, But you know, the most interesting thing about slow is fast is that it has been another huge discussion point with our customers because it's a phrase and a slogan that's that has been adapted in sort of several different ways. Um, there's, you know, there's military ties to it. There's there are like whole families who identify with it. Um, I think it, I think it has like a referential to the past vibe to it anyway. It's got a nostalgia about it um, because of the way things used to be done, especially in such a quick moving, quick turnover world that we're living in. I think that people like to think about that. And and I get asked the question all the time, what that means to us. And usually I get to find out what it means to somebody else. So I think um, it also more than anything just serves as another point of connection between us and our customers. I love that. Um, so you've mentioned kind of the tools and the process that you use um, a couple of times. And I want to get some more details on that as we kind of turn the conversation toward how your actual product line um, makes up your brand as well, because your product line is just so tight. Um, before we get to that, though, can you kind of explain the uniqueness of the process processes that you use and the tools that you use, maybe kind of give us a a sort of an audio tour of your shop floor. Yeah. Yeah. The, this is the tool nerd portion of the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can always tell when someone walks in the door, if they want me to start talking about tools or not, I've just been able to profile people in that way. Um, I've had a few surprises, but um, yeah. So if you walk into our workshop, you will see I think our, I call it our fleet of anvils right now, um, which is the, you know, the cartoon thing that they drop mm-hmm. on the Roadrunner. Um, I think it was a Roadrunner. I should look into that. So, yeah, so it's, we have a fleet of those. I think we have about seven or eight of them on the floor now, and they range in age from the early 1700s to um, our most recent one, which was, um, came over from Belgium actually in 2015. Um, but most of them fall in the 1800s, early 1900s range, mostly English anvils. And so that is the core of what we do is we swing a hammer at a piece of metal that is sitting on an anvil. And that is how we, uh, that is how we create most of our product line, particularly our cuffs. 
um, is by manipulating the shapes of the metals um, using the forging process. There's also a lot of other things involved. Obviously, we're we're annealing with fire. We are soldering. Um, we are uh, using rolling mills. We have this really beautiful uh, set of triplets that uh, rolling mills that were made in Philadelphia, not too far from us in the 1880s. And we have whole, uh, they were by a company called Lodge and Sons. And we have a whole um, series in our line that's called our Lodge series, which is like a low dome profile, half round shape. And we have like a choker, we have earrings, we have um, cuff bracelets and different weights all made with this shape. And all of it is done by extruding the metal on this one particular rolling mill that takes two people to operate. It's super stupid from a production standpoint, um, but it's really special. And and when people buy something in the Lodge series or they're thinking about buying something in that series, it's um, always really fun for them to sort of know and see that um, and be able to think of things in, in terms of how it's made and, and what it's made with, because it's so often these days that um, we want to forget how our things are made. We don't want to mm-hmm. know or we want to forget or or it's scary or we have no idea. Um, and so I think being able to see our tools and understand our tools and know that we're making everything here in Pittsburgh is really special to people. Um, it's special to the end user in a, you know, thankfully growingly more conscious world. Awesome. Thank you for that. I I, I need to actually come and see the shop at some point. Um, but uh, I appreciate sort of the, the audio tour. You'll hear how the Studebaker Metals team makes decisions about what stays and what goes in their product line in just a minute. But first, a word from our What Works partners. What Works is brought to you by the What Works Network and our upcoming virtual conference on building your brand. It's every business owner's dream to be known, to have a stellar reputation for the work you do, to be the go-to solution for your customers' problems. But making that happen is easier said than done. Not only are you facing down a wall of competition between you and your customers, you're also combating everything else vying for their attention at any given time. So how do you break through and become known? That's exactly what this week's Build Your Brand virtual conference is all about inside the What Works Network. We're talking with Suze Chadwick, Finka Jerkovic, Mel Richards, and Hillary Ray about building a standout brand and becoming known. Each speaker will provide a different angle on how to craft a story, share what makes your business different, and build your brand. Now, maybe you're thinking, that sounds great, Tara, but what the heck is a virtual conference? We host four virtual conferences inside the What Works Network every year. They're day-long deep dives into a particular aspect of how your business works. Each session is a real-time conversation with an expert where you can ask questions, share your own experiences, and network with other members. And the best part is, because they're virtual, you don't even have to leave the comfort of your home office. Pretty cool, right? The Build Your Brand Virtual Conference, plus our upcoming conferences on money, sales, and coaching yourself as an entrepreneur are for What Works Network members only. To find out more about the What Works Network so you can join us for the Build Your Brand Virtual Conference on March 12th, go to explorewhatworks.com slash network. That's explorewhatworks.com slash network. What Works is also brought to you by Mighty Networks. 
Now, the last decade was all about the huge, open, online platforms with loose relationships and even looser ethics. This decade is starting out with a step in the opposite direction. Today, more than ever, people are craving a way to create deep, meaningful connections online. They want to find communities that mean something to them, and they want to work with like-minded people to learn and grow. This is your opportunity. You can be the person to bring them together and Mighty Networks makes it possible. Mighty Networks is everything you need to create a safe private space for the people you care about. Whether you're building a movement, training a growing group, advocating for a cause you care about, or all of the above, Mighty Networks brings you the infrastructure to do it. It's your community hub, your online course platform, and a membership powerhouse all in one. We use Mighty Networks to create a dedicated private space for small business owners to trade notes on what's working and get support on what's not. Who will you bring together with a Mighty Network? To start your Mighty Network free of charge, go to MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. So we talked about the fact that your collection is really tight. Um, Everything makes just a ton of sense uh, in the line that you have. And it really re- it really emphasizes what the brand is all about, reinforces what the brand is all about. How do you decide what goes, what stays, and e- maybe even more importantly, when to add a new piece to the collection? Yeah, well, as far as what, what goes and stays, it's, uh, it's an extremely sophisticated process <laughs> of making a ton of shit getting in a bunch of fights with my partner about them and then editing it down from there. And it's, you know, I've, I've had people ask us over the years about our design process. And I think that I I definitely think that this is how a lot of people work. Uh, Although I'm, I would love to know um, if somebody has a more civilized way, but especially when you're working with a partner, we do, we just do a ton of like first round is here's all of our ideas. Um, Well, the first thing I do is I I figure out what we're going to be, dropping. And then that informs what categories we need to be adding to as far as Mm. skew count. And then from there, we have like a full team meeting and everybody just does the ideas. Um, I usually post up like a mood board for for the season. And then we, um, which I think is really different from, from other jewelry brands, we design in material rather than with sketches. Like sometimes we'll do a sketch, but it'll be really quick. And then we'll quickly move to material because our quote unquote factory is right downstairs. Um, So we do a lot of trial and error that way. And then we over design, over design, over design. And then um, Michael and I kind of go to bat defending which ones we feel the strongest about. A lot of times we align, but when we don't, it's usually eventually someone just saying like, oh, you care more than I do. Fine. (laughs) And so uh, that's how we sort of land on, on what we're going to add. And obviously we usually add more in the Q3, Q4 than we do in the spring. Although this year is a bit of an anomaly because we had so much left over from our last design round that we we liked that we sort of are coming into spring now with a larger release than we usually do. Um, but I think the biggest thing for us is we're not a corporation, so we don't have to act like one all the time. We're not this big company that needs lots of approval. So we have the advantage of being able to say like, yeah, it, we, we're going to release 10 new items now and maybe only two at holiday um, or vice versa. Or something that we're playing with this year, which is new for us, is 
um, as we as we really switch our focus um, to direct to customer um, and less so on wholesale is saying like, well, you know what, we can we usually have this spring and this fall release, but if we want to, we can just release one thing a week if we wanted, or we could release something in in the middle of a season um, because we're excited about it and we're ready, or because we just want to create a new talking point on talking point on our social channels. So we've been giving ourselves more freedom with that lately. We used to, I think because I used to work for much bigger companies, I was just used to working on design calendars. And now we're, we're actually getting a little more comfortable with being more fluid with adding and removing SKUs. Um, But yeah, as far as our design process, more than anything, it's just um, trying as much as we can and, and seeing what happens. Gotcha. So you have been refreshing twice a year, and now it's moving into kind of a faster cycle or a more spontaneous cycle. Yeah. So we've always um, we've always had a release around March, um, very early March, and then another release right before holiday in early September. Um, but yeah, now we're we're still doing those just because it's a force of habit, and that's what the market expects of us. We need to show something to our wholesale customers at the in those timeframes. Um, but we already know that we have four or five designs this year that are going to fall outside of that cycle um, and that are going to be exclusively direct to customers. So that's the other thing when we, when we're not wholesaling something in general, um, we get a lot more freedom with when we're going to release it. Gotcha. So this move from wholesale or primarily wholesale or focusing on wholesale to moving more toward direct to customer, are you rethinking anything when it comes to the brand or is it more of just a, like a sales and an operational shift for you? So, you know, it's, it's more of a, more than anything, it's, uh, it's us adapting to the market. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously um, small boutiques are quickly being outpaced by this direct to customer um, online, online sector. Um, and so we see, a lot more fluctuation. It's just not as steady in the wholesale market um, as it used to be. And that's not to say that there aren't boutiques and um, small online e-commerce, like sort of lifestyle businesses doing really well, because there are, there are a lot and they still do a really strong business. It's just more that um, you don't see the sort of like depth in that field. Um, And I think it's harder, it's harder to sort of play in that market. And for us, we, realize that we have this hugely underdeveloped opportunity in direct to customer. And then obviously at the end of the day, that's the better margin. Um, And there's so many ways now, there's so many more tools where we can grow our site and grow our ads and grow our just general digital marketing uh, um, without without as much knowledge as you needed before. You know, I Mm -hmm. think like five years ago, you really needed a ton of knowledge to sort of do that from scratch. And now there's so many different platforms available to you to help you grow that yourself. And so that's what we've been really playing with. And so I think it is really from a sales perspective, but it is also um, changing our brand in ways that we didn't know sort of already, because we are, we are suddenly thinking like, oh, well, if we aren't relying on the wholesale margin and we're going to be getting, you know, the full sale, then we it opens us up from a design perspective. And so mm-hmm. you heard it first, Tara. We are <laughs> going to be adding a lot of non-wearables uh, this year. We're, we're really dabbling into housewares um, and things like that. And things that the way that we make things really limits what we 
what we can do within a price range that mm-hmm. people can actually pay for that object. And so when it came to wholesale, when we were cutting that in half, it really made so many things impossible. So mm-hmm. sort of like a, a less intended perk of us sort of switching our focus more to direct the customer is that it's really opened up our abilities and what's available for us to be making and selling on our site. So uh, we're really excited about that. And it's, it's something we always get requests for. And it's something that's really within our toolkit is, is thinking about, you know, housewares and, and other sort of like lifestyle items that aren't jewelry. So, so I think it is going to have a really big impact on how the brand presents. Um, And obviously from a marketing perspective, and even just from a, a digital, you know, ad perspective is that we're going to have to completely rethink that strategy this year. And, you know, we already are, but I think that's something that's going to be evolving all through 2020. So, yeah. Oh, exciting. Yeah. Very <laughs> exciting. exciting. Um, so you mentioned price. Let's let's shift the conversation to price a little bit because you do have everything at all different price ranges on your website. Um, everything from you know like sixty bucks uh, for a brass or a copper cuff, all the way up to well over a thousand dollars, over two thousand uh, dollars for some of the solid gold pieces. How does working with such a broad price range impact the positioning that you pursue in the market? So that's a really great question. What we found was, so obviously that's a tough thing to pull off in the jewelry market because Mm -hmm. people are either like your costume jewelry or your fine jewelry. And there are a few brands that have sort of um, mostly that have started as fine and then added in their more affordable price line. Um, and we sort of did the opposite. And I think that the reason that we get away with that, you know, we really started back, um, you know, six years ago, we started with an entry level price point of $48. And that was really purposeful for us because we wanted to create um, sustainable, well-made stuff that we ourselves could actually afford. Mm-hmm. Because there was, you know, the start of this movement of knowing where your stuff came from, knowing that it's well-made, knowing that the materials aren't junk um, and knowing that it's going to last. And that being a space that, you know, not everybody could even participate in. So it was sort of like frustrating, I think. Um, And so we wanted to create something that was all of those things that was a sustainable business model, but that people could afford. Um, And so we really started there, but I think what allowed us to move into the fine space is that, we weren't selling cheap stuff. We were selling affordable quality stuff. And so I think because we sort of laid a foundation within the brand that you were getting more than you paid for, you know, like people, people would often receive a piece from us and be like, I can't believe that I got this for $48, you know, which is what a brass and copper cuff cost back then. And I think that we had, um, a built-in fine customer just from people who, you know, the the sort of in the Venn diagram of like people who care about quality and people who have a bunch of money, there's like a good overlap there. And so when people would sort of discover our brand, they actually started asking us for gold versions of things. Um, So we sort of started that by doing custom pieces for people. And then we thought like, hey, let's let's post our two best-selling cuffs in gold and see what happens. And then, you know, we were we were in early days. We were maybe two years in and we would go to sleep and we would wake up and someone would have bought a $3,500 bracelet. And we were just like, oh, <laughs> people will do that. That's, our, that's wonderful. That's lovely, you know. 
Um, so we sort of ran with that and started expanding that line. Now, from a marketing perspective, back then, it was just kind of like, here's all our stuff. Here's what we talk about. Here's our social channels. But as we started getting more into you know, using paid ads and targeting, um, it becomes a different story, right? Because we, mm-hmm. we have the capability, um, and even with newsletter marketing as well, to say, you know, we want to talk to people who have bought gold. We want to talk to people who have bought uh, you know, who have spent this much with our brand and sort of target gold to them. Um, and that's not to say that we don't expose the entire customer base to that product line, but we're able to put some more purposeful push behind finding that customer. And so that's been really interesting too. And that's a, a big thing for us now. We're actually, uh, I feel like I'm dropping all the release bombs on you right now, but um, we're going <laughs> that's to be- what I'm here for. I love it. Yeah, we're going to be. I think by April, we'll have every cuff that we make available in solid gold. So right now we have an offering of like five maybe, but um, we're going to be doing that and solid gold earrings. And it is a big jump. And I think that part of the really big jump for us is that most most jewelry brands will have a brass version of something and then a gold plated version of something. Mm -hmm. But because of the way we work, we don't plate anything. Right. Um, it's like inherent to what we do in our process and our ethos as a brand. And so you jump from solid brass to solid gold. And so a lot of times people will be like, why is this gold cuff thousands of dollars when so-and-so has a gold cuff for $150? And I'm like, think about that. Um, That's a lot of gold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a lot of gold. And also the, you know, the plated gold plating is, is not very much gold at all. It's barely any, right. you know? And so it's just a, it's a different product. And so we do run into having to have that conversation um, sometimes with our customer, which is a tough one. But I also do think that most of our solid gold customer are people who are finding us and are sort of delighted by the fact that we are selling this big chunk of gold for, you know, actually significantly less than someone like Cartier. Yeah. People often will come to us suspiciously and be like, I see that this is this many grams of gold. Why is it this much less than the Cartier gold bracelet? And I um, sadly have to remind them that I'm not Cartier. (laughs) But I wish that I were, but that's why they get to charge a whole bunch more. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Not that I, I feel like I'm also like simultaneously sort of like exposing brands like that for like how big their margin is. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we're very comfortable with our margin on gold. And so I think we we end up sort of um, capturing some of that customer that's like, oh, well, that sounds fair. I like that. Um, And so uh, so it's interesting. It's the gold conversation is always an interesting one. And it's always an interesting customer. So um, and they also become sort of a bespoke customer because anytime someone orders something in solid gold from us, it's, it's automatically custom made to measure and all of that. So Mm. it's more of a concierge experience. I love that. Well, come buy a gold cuff. I'll give you a great deal. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm excited about gold earrings. Cuffs. I love the look of a cuff, but as someone who types all day long, like it just, it really bothers my wrist. You don't have one that fits well enough. I'm going to send you one and see, I'm going to send you one and see. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we got to start wrapping up, but there's one more big question that I want to ask you, um, which is simply that you have a real sense of place. The brand has a real sense of place. Um, and that place is Pittsburgh. Um, and Pittsburgh kind of really plays a central role in how you've developed the brand, how you've developed the story behind it. 
Can you talk about why Pittsburgh is important to how you talk and how you formed the brand behind Studebaker Metals? Yeah, so there's there's sort of two very, very different reasons that Pittsburgh is so ingrained in our brand identity. So the first being um, that Pittsburgh is the single most supportive place I've ever lived. Mm. Um, there is this sense here that... Um, everyone, no matter what you're doing, is just like rooting for you, Mm -hmm. which is very odd to me because I grew up outside of Philadelphia and lived in Philly and New York City. And um, I love those places, but they are uh, not that kind of place. No. Um, So I always say that I I could never do this anywhere but Pittsburgh. And part of that is, um, you know, cost of living (laughs) and things like that. But the other piece of it is that people here um, were, there were so many people that were so um, major in helping us get off the ground, um, whether it was like hosting us for a pop-up or spreading the word or offering a space or feeding us or jumping in to help us on an order that we took on that was way too big for us to handle in the beginning, um, that Pittsburgh really is always a part of our identity there. The opposite, the other side of that is that Pittsburgh is, it's obviously a, a place that's rich with history in in steel and metal and you know, we get a lot of people who ask us if we're using recycled steel from the steel mills. And of course, we're not because we don't work with steel or anything like mm-hmm. that. But it's still my favorite adorable question. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the major reference is that we are, we are making these things with the aforementioned super old tools. Yeah. And tools in yesteryear were made by makers themselves. Like there were tool makers and that was their industry and what they did. And um, where they were making it was always like this huge source of pride. And that's why anytime you see an old hand tool or an anvil or or anything else, it's always stamped with the city of origin of where it was made. Um, so that's why you'll see like, you know, either the city or the country where something was made sort of branded into something old that you come across. And so we on all of our pieces that we're making with these very old tools from the beginning have always stamped Pittsburgh into them in some capacity and really, it's a reference um, that not everybody gets, but it's, again, another talking point. But it's a reference to the tools that we're making. And so just a byproduct of always stamping Pittsburgh into the pieces that you're making is that people come to really, really closely identify your stuff with Pittsburgh and, and where you're making it. And so I think that um, it's only it's only strengthened the brand as we became more of a global brand. We we moved Pittsburgh, which is now PGH, actually, to the inside of the pieces. And that was partially because we were sort of growing into different spaces and partially so that people could custom stamp more stuff on the outside because mm-hmm. people love putting their name on stuff. Um, and so uh, that was sort of twofold. But I think that um, the, the key takeaway is that um, the reason that we we've become so known for where we are is because we've always sort of led with that. I love that. Awesome. Alyssa, what are you guys excited about right now? I think excited um, more than anything for this sort of newfound freedom we have around shifting our focus. Um, And, you know, when I say focus, I I mean a lot of things and I I mean our focus, but I also mean our our dollars Mm -hmm. to direct to customer. Um, We are 
increasing ad spends and we're working with um, digital marketers and um, and other people and, and we've upgraded sort of our newsletter capabilities and all of that um, to really come out swinging this year by talking with our customer one-on-one and directly. And that's, that's what I'm most excited about. And I'm excited to see how that translates into how we design and what we're designing and what we're offering. And we're also just at this, you know, we we're coming up on six years. So we're sort of at that like five year part, uh, point for a small business. And I feel like that's a terrifying time for a business this size because that plateau is so real. And I think that the the way that we've really been handling that is letting it energize us and letting us explore new directions and to see what happens and sort of what works, so to speak, uh, moving forward. Um, so I think that more than anything, like I just feel this sort of weight weight lifted to sort of just sort of run free with the brand. That's awesome. Alyssa, thank you so much for sharing everything that you have about the Studebaker Metals brand. I am so grateful for your story and and just all the kind of inside information that you've given us today. Thank you. Of course. Thanks for having me. It was super fun. Now, I open this episode by sharing the power of a focused and intentional brand. But the other word that comes to mind when I think about the choices that Alyssa and Studebaker Metals have made is consistency. Studebaker has been incredibly consistent in how they've developed their products, marketing, and messaging to represent the brand and how they want it to become known. For small business owners, consistency can often feel like redundancy. We get a little tired of our own choices when we repeat them, double down on them. But consistency never looks like redundancy from an outside perspective. Radical consistency creates a framework for customers to remember you. Consistency tells a powerful story. Consistency builds a brand. Now, to find out more about Alyssa Catalano and Studebaker Metals, go to studebakermetals.com. Next week, you'll hear from Sarah Dean about how brands are co-created with the people you're connecting through your mission. And don't forget to get in on the What Works Network before our first virtual conference of the year, all about building your brand. Plus, you'll get access to our brand new What Works Tools collection, including our leadership dashboard for balancing big picture planning with day-to-day execution, the brand brief template, and our standard operating procedures template. The virtual conference and What Works Tools are for members only. And enrollment is open now, but just for a little while longer. Go to explorewhatworks.com slash network to join us. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode was edited by Marty Seafelt. Production assistance is by Kristen Runfick. Find over 260 more candid conversations about what's really working to run and grow a small business today at explorewhatworks.com. <laughs>